Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Thursday, October the 13th, 2022. Bad luck for some, although... Luck seems to be changing, at least according to my guest yesterday, Columbia University's uh, Bruce Usher. He believes that we're finally beginning to have the technologies to confront climate change. Uh, he's a professor at the Columbia Business School. I think he's a big believer in American innovation and business. He has a new book out called Investing in the Era of Climate Change. And it was refreshing to hear Usher's take. He believes that the new technologies of solar power and of EV batteries and of wind energy finally enabling us to confront climate change and perhaps overcome it. Um, it's reassuringly good news, although we've had many people on the show who don't agree, I think, with Usher, much more apocalyptic. Uh, my guest today, um, following up from Asha, also has a new book out on uh, the environment. It's called Planet in Peril, Humanity's Four Greatest Challenges and How We Can Overcome Them. In contrast with uh, Asha, Michael Best is a historian uh, at uh, Vanderbilt University. Uh, Michael, before we talk about your book, what would you make of Asha's optimism? Is it exaggerated, uncalled for, or perhaps rather unfashionable, but necessary and maybe even true? Well, I, I think optimism is very useful as long as we understand that it's conditional optimism. Uh, it's, it's things are going badly and we're not doing enough, but people are beginning to wake up. And if that continues, I think we definitely have the tools that we need to turn this problem around. And uh, in that sense, doing the research for this book made me a lot more uh, hopeful for the future, but it's conditional hope in the sense that it depends on enough people coming around to understand how drastic and how urgent in, uh, the climate issue is. Michael, you're a broad historian. Your two previous books were Choices Under Fire, Moral Dimensions of the Second World War, and our grandchildren redesigned Life in the Bioengineered Society. So in contrast with a lot of the guests on this show, at least, you're not an environmental expert. doesn't mean that you're not credible. What led you to this book, Planet in Peril? Why did you write it? Well, first of all, it's it's the the climate issue is only one of four apocalyptic or existential dangers that I talk about in the book, and the other three are nuclear weapons, pandemics, and pandemics can be natural, like the one that we've just experienced, or they could be bioengineered. They could be the result of um, deliberate uh, engineering on the part of humans. And then the, the fourth is artificial intelligence, um, advanced artificial intelligence, getting out of control or being used for military purposes. 
So uh, what drew me to, 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 to look at these four is they're together, they come, they, they present planet level dangers that require us to come up with planet level solutions. So that's what's been holding us back in, in many ways in confronting these four horsemen of the apocalypse successfully so far. And so the second half of the book really is looking at what we could do incrementally over the coming 100, 150 years uh, to move the planet toward a different global framework of governance where the United Nations becomes a far more effective instrument for coordinating uh, the activities of humankind for confronting these things. But I, as I say, I'm far more uh, hopeful than I was five or six years ago when I started writing the book, because I've, I've come to believe that we really do have within ourselves, uh, within humankind today, uh, there's already a proven track record that has been building over the past hundred years. If we continue that good work, there's hope. How did you choose those four greatest challenges? I, I, I'm curious. I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Martin Rees, who's an old friend and actually will be coming back on the show uh, later in October or in early November. He yeah. also writes about these existential challenges. And, and one of his focuses, perhaps his central focus, is on asteroids from outer space and other uh, challenges to our planet and humanity from extra planetary forces. Did you decide not to write on that? I did. Uh, in my introduction, I have a little section where I say, why these four? And uh, there's another wonderful book uh, out today that's similar to Martin Rees's work. It's Toby Ord's book, The Precipice. And he also uh, talks about uh, potential existential risk. Yeah, Ord is... I can't remember if he's, I've had so many people on the show. Either he's been on the show or someone has suggested he'd been on the show. So he, his work is interesting too. It is. Where his work and mine, in fact, when I read his book, I thought, oh my gosh, here's somebody who's sort of done a lot of what I'm doing with my book. But where uh, my book sort of takes it in a different direction is I really do spend half the book focusing on building new political instruments at the international level a gradual incremental process. It's going to take many decades. And, you know, sometimes I'm talking to people about climate change and I say, it's going to take many decades. And they say, but we don't have many decades. And uh, that may, that may be, I, I'm, I'm afraid that the instruments that I talk about are not the th sort of things that you can develop overnight. They take time to build. They're, they're the result of slow cumulative processes. But I did think about asteroids, about supervolcanoes. Uh, for a while, uh, I was looking closely at the possibility of nanotechnology uh, running amok. Uh, after a while, I, I became convinced that uh, there is enough scientific evidence to suggest the fear of nanotechnology is, is, has probably been overblown and is unlikely to, to be a, pose a real existential threat. But certainly asteroids coming through from outer space or uh, or supervolcanoes could pose a, a very great danger. I eliminated them because there's only a very limited amount of human agency of what we can actually do. Now, just yesterday in the news, mm. uh, there was some encouraging news, which was they intercepted, uh, a, 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 I guess it was a meteorite, um, 
and were able to alter its course in a significant way by hitting it with a missile. Uh, so some portion of the asteroid danger probably does lie within our, our control. And yes, I'm all in favor of- Michael, uh, we both, uh, we were talking before the, the show went live, we're both old Berkeley people, both grad yeah. students there. You're very much connected with Berkeley still, your family is associated with it. So this is a bit of a Berkeley question. Yes. Why should we care? Humanity's fucked up on so many levels. We're such a, an ugly, ignorant species. Why should we really want to save the planet? Or, or if not the planet, why should we want to save humanity? We've disgraced ourselves on, in so many ways. What's so good about us? Who cares? Well, I'll give you a Berkeley answer to that. It's a lovely question. Uh, well, it's a lovely Berkeley question. I don't know whether the Stanford people would appreciate it. <laughs> well, or they'd even understand it. Stanford people aren't as smart, of course, as Berkeley people. <laughs> no way, absolutely. Uh, the, I'd say if you just look at the city of Berkeley itself, it's a microcosm. Uh, the Berkeley, the, the role it played in the 60s, the 70s counterculture, many very ugly things have happened in the San Francisco Bay Area and are still happening. And many very beautiful things ha happened, uh, uh, came out of Berkeley. You take that question a little bit more broadly, and I think you can say the same thing about humanity's impact on the planet. We have brought uh, untold misery to, we brought extinctions and- 70, per, I keep on interrupting, uh, Michael, I apologize, but- um. I read this morning a New York Times headline, 70% of species have been lost over the last 50 years, which is an astonishingly, even, even for these sorts of numbers, is, it's just mind-boggling. It is. And we, the fact that we're finally starting to come to grips with that fact, I find that encouraging. Uh, but it's also sobering. We're, and every day, this it gets worse. And so once again, that's one of these other issues that doesn't necessarily pose an existential threat to our species. But uh, I think I wanna, I wanna say that we've brought lots of terrible things to the planet and we've brought lots of uniquely lovely things to the planet and we are worth saving. And certainly by saving ourselves, we will also prevent the destruction of the broader ecosystem and all the other creatures. So hopefully if we make the right decisions, it won't just redound to our own selfish benefit. It'll also benefit the rest of the creatures who you know, cohabit the planet with us. But I think it's also uh, just a powerful argument to say we, we want our children and grandchildren and great grandchildren to have a decent world to live in. Can we try to take that world in a better direction? And I think there are actual things we can do, start doing today, and keep doing over the coming decades to make that happen. So we have these four existential threats, uh, Michael. I, I wanna talk about the UN later. I have to admit, I'm not convinced by your UN argument, but we'll, we'll leave that till later. Right. What about this ongoing debate? You're a historian, so it's really been the ongoing debate of the last couple of hundred years of government versus the market. The idea that and this came out in our conversation with Asha. He's an investor and a venture capitalist and a former businessman. He believes in American capitalism, I think, saving, ultimately helping to save the environment. We've had a number of other people on the show, like Bob Keith, 
uh, he has a new book out called Climanomics, which talks about uh, the role of capitalism. And there are others when it comes to the environment, like uh, George Monbiot, for example, the progressive English environmental journalist. He has a new book out, Regenesis, which I don't think is as hopeful about the market. So it's the market versus government. Where does, where does, in your view, the most effective way for confronting these existential challenges, aside from the UN, does it come from business or government, or is it both or neither? It's definitely both. Uh, I, uh, I wouldn't want to go too far in saying we have to leave it to the market, but nowadays the market seems to be doing, uh, taking some initiative uh, in, in, in some ways that is bypassing the blockages that we see in our government. The government is, is slower in some ways uh, to respond to the energy crisis, to the environmental crisis, uh, than the business community. So I, I literally, my jaw dropped when I heard that GM announced, I guess this was last year, uh, that you know they're going to stop building gasoline cars, and I think it's by the year 2035. And then a whole bunch of other companies were on, went on board with that. And that's just one example of how these uh, environmentalist ideas are now starting to take hold in and, and companies are saying the smart play from an economic point of view is to get on board with that and start positioning ourselves to be creative central actors in this what's clearly going to be the dominant economic activity of, of the coming century it's that that that's very important government can then also is a is the other side of the equation and you can't do it i think completely without government but i i think it's it's encouraging to me that so many people now in the business world are getting on board with this and i i suspect that what will happen is as that as the business communities takes the lead the governments may well then have to follow and governments it's, are it's the chinese versus the American model, isn't it? I mean, you, you, you write about pandemics. Yeah. Certainly there are two models of dealing with COVID, the Chinese versus the American. Given we've had COVID now for two or three years, which model do you think works better or, 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 or do they need each other? Is it necessary to mix them up? I'm not sure I can identify that much difference. I mean, the, the Chinese, uh, you know, locked in uh, and enforced, you know, surrounding cities. And right. I mean, very different. The American response and the, and the Chinese one. Yeah. In that sense, that, that level, the political aspect of it is very different. Uh, and, uh, and also the efficacy of it. I mean, the United States then had to deal with far larger numbers of infections, but the Chinese then had to deal with tremendous economic and societal consequences and penalties in a sense for taking that very drastic um, sort of political avenue for it. I think uh, I, I come down pretty strongly on the side of free institutions and democratic processes. And so I think that for all the problems that we have encountered in confronting this latest pandemic in the United States and in other democratic countries, I think that's the right way to go. But part of the problem is that the governments, uh, they, didn't, they, they were unprepared. They were not sufficiently equipped uh, to, 
take hold and, and, and respond properly, even though experts in these fields had been warning for decades of precisely this kind of pandemic. In a sense, we were even lucky that this particular microbe turned out to be less deadly than it could have been, say, like with the Spanish flu microbe uh, 100 years ago. This one, on a, on a scale of, of severity, uh, was terrible, it killed all these people, but it could have been much, much worse. And in that sense, we were actually lucky this time. Hopefully, we're, we'll, we'll be able to learn from, from this. People do learn when they've been hit hard enough. I think that's one thing that as a historian, I can definitely generalize. Uh, the world wars produced changes. Yeah, your, your book on um, the moral dimensions of World War II must have been very informative. Speaking of war, one of the one of the perils for you is nukes. Had this come out last year before the Ukrainian war, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, some people might have poo-pooed this. Now, perhaps the nuclear threat is the most real in our post-COVID age. Um, what's your take on the real threat to the planet of nuclear war? I mean, if there is a nuclear war, it's not going to destroy the planet. It's just going to destroy human beings, right? Well, it depends. It's And to be honest, nobody knows. It could destroy far more than just human civilization. It could eliminate many, many, most life forms. We don't know uh, what the consequences would be. When you really just get down into the literature, uh, it depends you know, on, on so many factors. But uh, one of the frustrating things for me over the past couple decades has been the way some people were talking about the nuclear threat sort of having receded from, from as, a, as a threat be, because the Cold War ended and, oh, so now we don't have to think about them, but they're sitting there in their silos, 13,000 of them uh, ready to go at every, at every, you know, every minute of every second of every day. You're uh, Michael, you're a historian, uh, Ken Waltz, the great uh, realist IR expert from Berkeley, who also taught me was on your PhD committee. Yeah. Um, do realists like Waltz make the existential threat of nuclear war more or less likely in contrast with idealists like Ernie Haas, who was the uh, uh, the other side of the IR coin to Waltz at Berkeley, the two sort of most influential, I think, thinkers in IR. So I have a section in my book where I actually explicitly talk about the, the people who call themselves realists and how they juxtapose themselves with the people whom they label as idealists. And I, uh, I, I criticize that whole debate. I say that's a, it's in a sense a false debate. The people who call themselves realists, and there's, they're, they're a tradition that goes back Thucydides, Machiavelli, Bismarck, Morgenthau, Kissinger, all, you know, they're, it, they're a, a very, long running and influential group of thinkers. But I say the argument I make is their their position is selective in its reading of history and tendentious because what they do is they say they look at all the more negative features of human uh, human nature and they and they say those features have been there all along and they're never going to change. And they underestimate tremendously the, the power of cooperation. 
all that they really emphasize is the competition. But cooperation is just as powerful a shaping force in human history as competition. They're both constantly interweaving with each other. And when countries compete with each other, they do so often by cooperating within themselves and with other allies. And cooperation goes down into the very fabric of our day-to-day -day survival. The realists underestimate that. And they un also underestimate the innovations that have happened throughout history, where it's not just constantly the same play being rerun over and over again. There have been remarkable steps forward and, and innovations. The example that stands out for me, and I really talk about it a lot in my book, is what's happened to France and Germany since World War II. After centuries of rivalry and, and war and conflict, over the past 40, 50 years, the French and the Germans have become partners and war between them is unthinkable. They're the core of, the, they're, they're the really part of the main core of the EU today. I mean, Ken Waltz isn't here to defend himself, but for every France, Germany, we have an Israel, Palestine or a Cyprus. Exactly. Um, so anyway, it, it's an interesting debate. What about, uh, and I'm talking to you from San Francisco. I spend a lot of time writing and thinking about the threat of AI in your four great existential challenges, Michael, where, where is AI? Um, uh, um, is it top or bottom of the list? Well, it's at the bottom of the list in the sense that it doesn't pose any existential danger today. It's not going to pose an existential danger probably for 30 years at the soonest. And, uh, but it could eventually 30, 40, 50, depending on which experts you're talking to, it, it's now become clear. They do polls of the people, the scientists and the technologists who build these AIs. And majorities of them are now saying that these technologies, once they become advanced to certain levels, could pose potentially existential dangers. I mean, isn't the issue, and this is something that I've we've had a number of conversations about, and this is the great, the great question, the, and you probably say it's an unanswered or certainly an unanswerable question, is whether AI can ever learn to think for itself or whether it will always be told how to think and what to think by us. And if it ever learns to think for itself, uh, we're pretty much finished as a species. Well, so the, the, the challenge is, I, I think most of the people who work on these things are confident that the AI will be able increasingly to think for itself. It can't do that today, but that it will increasingly become multifunctional in ways it's probably never going to have an exactly human-like consciousness. That's not what they're trying to do. And probably that, that would be impossible or it would take much, much longer, but it doesn't need to have a human-like consciousness to have human-like functionality as an agent in the world. And it's also going to be lower level forms of AI will be all over the place. And this, in this kind of networked world where AI permeates our business world, our infrastructure, our transportation, our communication, not to mention the military, in that kind of world, as these AIs become more highly functional and integrated in their functions, there's the possibility for disastrous 
uh, accidents or even for military uses of AI that would launch World War III. That's something to take very seriously. It's not a clear and present danger. It's a danger we need to start preparing for today because 30 or 40 years from now, we're going to have those kinds of increasingly high-functioning machines in our midst. Well, let's talk about the UN because that's an important piece of your argument. You, in contrast, I think, to myself and other skeptics, perhaps, believe in the UN as an idea and as, a, as an institution which can really represent the, the organizing principle of uh, of of of, uh, of the planet in peril of, of fighting back collectively. Well, what is it about the UN that gives you such confidence? It always seems to me to be an archaic and highly politicized bureaucracy that's achieved very little in the world in its how many years of existence, Michael? Since nineteen forty-five, right? Uh, so uh, you know, eighty years of existence. It's hard to know exactly what it's done. And given the political divisions now, and uh, you rarely even hear of the UN, for example, in terms of the, the Ukraine war, uh, why are you so optimistic about it? So I'm, once again, conditionally optimistic. Today's, uh, I agree with everything you said that's distressing about the UN as it stands today, and the track record that the UN was um, was able to put together during the Cold War years was pretty miserable because it was hamstrung by the veto power of the Russians and the Americans, the Cold War block rivalry. Uh, I wouldn't want to overestimate the uselessness that of the UN if, as we look back over its 80 years. The UN has brokered some important um, peace uh, treaties and, and has served as a peacekeeper. The UN has played a major role in advancing consciousness about climate change and about the environment. The UN has helped to uh, fight racism and promote the empowerment of women. The UN- Now you're beginning to sound like a UN spokesman, Mike. Well, I, what I wanna say is it's terribly disappointing compared to the hopes that people had for it in the 1940s and 50s uh, that that did not come to pass. And, and in that sense, it's still a weak and disappointing instrument today. But that doesn't, the, here's my point. These are these four mega dangers looming over us over the coming century. They are planet level problems. They can only be solved via planet level solutions. If you don't have the UN, you're gonna have to invent some other kind of planet level instrument to coordinate the activities that we as, as humans and all spread across the continents and across the oceans, coordinate our strategies for confronting these four tremendous challenges effectively. And so I say, I acknowledge we're nowhere near where we need to be, but the UN needs to become a much more effective instrument and it can become a much more effective instrument. It's, a, it's up to policies and choices that lie within our grasp and we can make that thing happen, that process happen. It's not gonna happen uh, easily or overnight. It's gonna be an incremental process, kind of like a series of reforms that kind of layer upon each other and gradually build this institution. If you look at the EU, 
that's another interesting example. It started out as a utopian pipe dream in, in the 40s and 50s. It was built gradually in a series of accumulating increments into something that's now a very important reality in, in Europe and a, a player on the world stage. And I think it could take a century or more for the UN to become a more effective instrument, but it's important to actually start to identify, well, what do we need to do to make that start happening? And I do feel much more optimistic than I did before I started this book, that we do have things that we can do that, that can start this process, that can continue this process and take it further. Michael, you're a historian, so you know as well as anyone that nation states, for example, are only for all their uh, ideological um, narrative, they're only two or three hundred years old at, at most. Uh, leaving aside the UN, which has bureaucratic and problematic connotations, what about the chances of some other kind of world government by the end of the 21st century that will be able to address these bigger issues of technology, of sickness, of war? Well, it's hard for me to imagine what forms those uh, that other type of world government would take because ultimately what we're asking... Well, digital, is... for example. There are lots of people in Silicon Valley yeah. who believe that the future lies in networked government, network global government? Well, the problem is that what that, that question is, is omitting the politics that are inherent in any, assort, any sort of relationship among peoples. And the, so I guess I would, I would say that's, the, yes, the networks are growing in density. And, but when you talk about the, the role of the internet, for example, it's been a double-edged sword. It has done some fantastic things and it's done some terrible dehumanizing things. And just the technologies themselves are not, they don't solve the problem. It always has to come back to politics, the moral, political decisions being made by groups of people as they compromise with each other negotiate with each other and find a way forward. And there's no way getting around that the those political dimensions that's why i keep coming back to the un as an instrument where mm -hmm. we're a place where people hopefully will be able to work those things out well there you have it from a berkeley trained historian michael bass planet in peril uh the answer is politics maybe the un maybe something a little bit more modern and effective and credible but uh, it's an important book and an important issue were you going to say something michael no, I was just saying, hopefully something more effective, something more modern. We'll see, we'll see what the, uh, the Russians and the Chinese and Americans, it's hard to imagine them agreeing on anything, but it's an important issue and it's not going to go away. It's only going to become, I think, more vital and essential yeah. um, as these problems grow. An important new book, as I said. Congratulations, Michael. Um, what else? I, You've got three or four minutes left before you take your wife to the airport. What else uh, are you reading these days that you would suggest for our audience, for our viewers? Uh, one um, book that I've, I've absolutely loved is a book. The title is A Brief History of Equality by mm. Thomas Piketty. Uh, he had, uh, he's a French economist who has had mm. these 800 yeah, yeah, yeah. poems. 
And uh, to his, his astonishment, his previous book, Capital in the 20th, 20th, 21st Century, um, became number one on Amazon and they couldn't print them fast enough. Um, now he's produced a book that's much shorter. It's a third of the length and it's written for a general audience of non-economists. So someone like me, not trained as an economist, I read, I've now read that book twice and I've assigned it in one of my classes. I teach a class on world poverty and it's a fantastic uh, eye-opening read. It, there's the richness of analysis and he uses these incredibly sophisticated diagrams and, and graphs and he, 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 he makes a very powerful case that equality actually has been increasing over uh, he, you know, we, he acknowledges the tremendous disparity that's happening between rich and poor. But if you look on a bigger time frame, 300 years or a thousand years, there's actually, we've created instruments for uh, decreasing the worst kinds of inequality. And in that sense, it's a very hopeful and promising book. It's a very argumentative book. And uh, my students and I have had a lot of discussions and arguments about it. Another book that I've really enjoyed was a novel by Kim Stanley Robinson, mm. The Ministry for the Future. Yeah, that book gets cited more than any other book, actually, I think. It's, uh, I guess if I had to say, imagine if, 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 if I were a novelist writing Planet in Peril, and I was going to turn Planet in Peril into a story, how, does this gonna, how is this going to unfold over the coming hundred years? Um, in a sense, that's what Kim Stanley Robinson is doing with this wonderful novel. And uh, there is, in fact, a UN or global body and a, a, a woman, an Irish, wonderful Irish woman who's one of the main characters. And you sort of get taken through the decades of evolution as this global uh, agency tries to push forward the changes that are needed in order to deal adequately with climate change. And uh, I found that to be uh, a, a brilliant and entertaining and thought provoking book. So together, these two books are my favorites right now. Excellent, Mike.